0: Welcome to podcast number 89 of My Favorite Detective Stories. Today's date is February 18th, 2020, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. My guest today is Mark Bergen. Mark graduated from Boston University with a degree in journalism, then worked four years as a newspaper reporter and photographer, winning the Virginia Press Association Award for General News Reporting, before joining the Alexandria, Virginia Police Department in 1986. Twice, named Police Officer of the Year for Narcotics and Robbery Investigations, he served in most of the posts described in Apprehension, his debut novel, and rose to the rank of lieutenant. Kirkus Reviews calls Apprehension compelling and said Bergen is a gritty and authentic new voice in police fiction. Bergen lives in Alexandria and Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, with his wife, Ruth, an attorney and former public defender. They have two children. Welcome to My Favorite Detective Stories. My Favorite Detective Stories features successful private investigators. They offer insights into their careers and advice to those just starting out or to those who are struggling. You will learn from the best. Of course, we cannot finish the show without asking them to share their favorite detective story. On alternating weeks, we will hear from crime fiction writers who discuss their latest books and what makes their fictional detectives tick. Throughout my investigative career spanning five decades, I cannot think of a time that I didn't have a good crime novel on my coffee table or bedstand. We will also talk about their favorite authors as well. As a working investigator, coach, and writer, I hope to bring inspiration, information, and entertainment in the areas that interest me most. Gather round my campfire as I invite you to listen in. This episode is brought to you by my own crime thriller with a mystery twist, Odessa on the Delaware. A Russian gang enforcer is on a murderous rampage to take over the entire Philadelphia mob scene. A homeless vet doesn't know that he has the proof or that he's next on the list. The stakes are high for this deadly cat-and-mouse game set on the bleak Philly waterfront of years gone by. FBI agent Marsha O'Shea, a gunslinger from the Miami cartel days, is back in her hometown, quietly finishing out her career, but now is drawn into this case with a secret pushing her doggedly to follow the clues, only to uncover a greater secret that may get her killed in the final showdown. You can buy Odessa from your favorite online retailer. Hi, Mark. Welcome
1: to the show. Hi, John. Thank you very much for having me on.
0: Oh, uh, you're welcome. I knew that we'd be uh, talking again after our Bausher Khan attendance. Uh, we were both uh, debut authors, I believe. Am I correct?
1: Yes, yes, yes. Very excited.
0: And when I saw apprehension there, I said, "Ooh, ooh, I've got to, uh, <laughs> I got to talk to Mark. I got to find out more about this guy." And you were so gracious to say you want to come on, but our schedules had a, we had to wait until now, which is fine. I mean, no, no wine before it's time. <laughs>
1: Gave me time to think of something to say.
0: Uh, no, I don't think you have a problem with that, and <laughs> neither do I. But, <laughs> but in any event, um, so uh, again, um, I'm talking to another uh, person that decided to raise their hand and uh, uphold the oath of, uh, and to be a um, sworn law enforcement officer. And I want to ask you about, you know, how you got started and, you know, your career and tell me about your writing as well and how that dovetailed with it and just kind of walk me through it. And then uh, at some point we'll, uh, that'll give us the lead into apprehension. So uh, the floor is uh, yours, sir. Okay. I'll talk fast.
1: Um, I was born in Philadelphia and that's one of the reasons why I enjoyed your book, Odessa on the Delaware so much. Okay. Uh, we, we moved around. I grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs mm-hmm. and I'd always been interested. <laughs> I've been interested in two things. I've always wanted to write a book from the time I was a teenager. I remember getting out certain books a second and third time just to reread them and see how the author did it. Really? Alistair, Alistair McLean was my favorite Okay, my books are, are nothing like his, um, but I'd always been interested in, in law enforcement too. But growing up, around Philadelphia, I kind of had a bad view of police. Um, Philadelphia police were somewhat known for brutality, racism, and, and graft. Mm. And it's, it's embarrassing to say, it wasn't until I got through college in journalism school, and then was a newspaper reporter, first outside of Philly, and then uh, in Alexandria, Virginia, where I was assigned to the cops and courts beat, that I got to know cops personally. I got to ride along. I got to sit next to them in court and watch how excited they were to get, to get guys convicted. That I figured, Hey, they're, they're normal people. I can do that job. Yeah. So I signed up and I was hired January of 1986 by the Alexandria Police Department and I worked there for 27 and a half years. Uh, and I retired after 28 years. Now, the half year difference is I had two heart attacks in mm. August of 2013. Uh, died actually, my heart stopped,
0: oh, boy. and it
1: started <laughs> miraculously twice. Apparently by me hitting the ground both times in the same morning. Oh jeez! I, I ended up with open heart surgery. I ended up with rehab, and at the end of the rehab, the city doctor and my doctor said, "You can't go back to work. Police work's too stressful. Stress caused this. You got to find something else to do." I said, "Okay." Um, I had, for some reason, in 1988, more than 30 years ago. I was working on a drug unit I was working 56 hour 50 or 60 hours a week uh, my first marriage was coming apart and I found myself suddenly drawn to the typewriter I re- I started writing a book I wrote three pages of notes I'm a plotter I'm a person who has to plot out mm-hmm. the whole book and the whole story and know the ending
0: yeah so there were three P-l- uh, I wrote- P-L-O-T-T-E-R, not <laughs> P-L-O-D-D-E-R. Yeah, a potter. A potter. may apply,
1: too, because it took me 30 years to get this thing done. <laughs> um, but yeah, I had a beginning, some middle, and an end. And I put them completely aside, went back to work, uh, uh, thought about them, but never thought of writing it. And it, it changed over time in the initial notes, which were primarily about a cop in trouble under a lot of pressure working on a case when some when a bad thing that he did the year before is about to come to light and it'll probably send him to prison. Mm. One of the ways I put pressure on my cop was I murdered his daughter.
0: Yeah, I'd say that's and, uh, a little bit of yeah. pressure.
1: Yeah. Well, too much. Because when I remarried again and had a daughter of my own, number one, I couldn't write that scene. And number two, I knew that losing a daughter that way would so totally destroy my character. That the story couldn't happen. So when I eventually wrote it, uh, she became a niece. Still a big loss, but not the uncontrollable loss and devastation that this would be. So I pulled out. When I knew I had to retire, I pulled out the notes. I started bridging the gaps between the beginning and the middles and the end and threw out some of the middle stuff and wrote an outline of about 34 chapters and just started banging it out. It ended up being 37 chapters because in the middle I figured out I needed another day. It takes place over a four day period. Okay. It took me a year to write. It took me a year to rewrite. It took me three years to find a publisher and it just came out last July.
0: Ta-da. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know how that feels. Yeah. Well, you have a lot
0: of books. Yeah. I'm happy for you. I am. I mean, and, and, and the journey, although not very straight or narrow and not very, uh, uh, smooth, uh, is one that, uh, going, going along with the determination to write a story and get it out there to the world. Uh, there's a lot to be said about it when you hold that finished product in your hand. And there's, uh, and if you're not your, your most favorite reader, then, uh, shame <laughs> on you. You haven't written a very good book. That's the way I feel about it. Okay. Uh, um, there are times when I sit down, uh, with my very first book and I'll read a, a page or two. And before you know it. <laughs> It's more than a page or two. And then uh-huh. I'll come to bed and uh my wife will say, well, what kept you awake? And I said, oh, I was just reading my favorite author. So. <laughs> you know. But anyway, so I, I want to kind of go backwards over a little bit of this, because um, I, as you know, I'm, I'm from the Philadelphia area. I grew up in Norristown, which was in Montgomery County. Yep. Uh, what uh, suburbs were you part of? Just just to say Mon- hi. M- Montgomery County, nope, Lower yeah.
1: Marion Township, the, the, the scene of the ending of your novel, <laughs> Odessa on the Delaware.
0: Well, I hope I I hope I got that palatial estate right. So, <laughs> yes, you did. There were a lot of them around, yes, but it was so fun reading the other
1: sort of touchstones in in Philly, in Oregon, mm-hmm. uh Temple University, the waterfront, the Olympia, the mm-hmm. USS Olympia, I got to bet on that so many times.
0: God, as a as a boy scout, you know, as yeah. a Cup scout, right. Now me too. And then um so the thing about what you said about Philly was I shared your original uh concerns about Philly PD. Um there there was a time there was a saying and I don't know if you remember this when Frank Rizzo was the police commissioner oh, yeah. and the saying was Clubs are Trump. Now, (laughs) obviously, you know what that meant, you know? Yeah. 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 And if I uh, I heard that I forgot it, but yeah. Yeah. And then afterwards, I was actually an intern with the Philly PD uh, in the summer of 75. And at the time, the Pennsylvania uh, Crime Commission was running roughshod over what was going on in some of the districts. And I said to myself. I, I mean, I had rabbis from you know where I was in my internship. I had people that you know were saying, "John, you know go to the academy, go to the academy, and I used the lame excuse mark that I didn't want to pay the city wage you know mm. a whopping six percent, you know, but I used that as a lame excuse because I just didn't want to throw myself into a situation where um, you know, my my police department was going to be in the newspaper in yes. not such a bad way. Not such a good way, excuse me. Not such a good way. So I passed on that um, with wisdom and experience now, and having been a cop, I realized that uh, with a little bit of uh, having the right kind of mentorship or right kind of leadership, I could have steered around some of those minefields. And that it's a regret of mine that I didn't get into a larger municipal police department with a lot of different uh, uh, what do you call it uh, specialized units. That's it, specialized units. Just wasn't you know straight patrol. Or well, one or two cops. So uh, long story short, I felt that, uh, you know, I passed on that. That was a regret of mine. But anyway, you got to see it and got to see them later on doing your journalistic work. Where where did you do your journalism out of when you were uh, out there? T- two years
1: for a weekly outside of Philadelphia in Chester County okay. called, the, called the Suburban Advertiser. All right. And then two years for a daily in Alexandria called the Alexandria Gazette. It was an afternoon paper. So we had a morning uh, deadline and I would go in about six you know, see what fires happen, see what shootings happen, go to the police station and read the arrest reports and see if there's anything that looked like a story. Mm -hmm. Because you could look at an arrest report, and if the time of the offense was, let's say, 1 a.m., and the time of the arrest is 1.30, that's a story. Yeah. That's a burglary in progress with an arrest, and I can make a story, I can make five or six paragraphs out of that, and I'd get two or three of those a day in the paper, and then in the afternoon, do features and stuff. But I'd always... I guess the, I was using journalism because I thought that was the closest I could come, but I would really rather be on the other side of the yellow tape mm-hmm. than I had the chance to.
0: So uh, tell me about that. Just you know, kind of walk me through that process. I know you have to blow off your memory banks to go back there, but uh, <laughs> well, when what was it like making that decision? And, did you, and then tell me about the process and how you went through the well, academy and how you became a rookie and all that other good stuff. It was an easy decision for me
1: because I'd always wanted it. And I liked the guys that I was seeing on this department. Some of them became friends and stayed friends. I only applied to two departments. I applied to Alexandria and to Fairfax County, which is the larger county that sort of surrounds the city. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was really only serious about Alexandria. I liked more the job that they did than the county. The county was half suburban and half rural, Mm -hmm. but the city of Alexandria had a city in it. Right. And I and I like the city work. I like the city lifestyle. Uh, when my department found out that I had passed the police test, because of course the department has to do background investigations, and they call my bosses and they say, "Are you trying to be a cop?" I said, "Yep." I said, "Well, you're off the police," which was pretty logical. And I probably should have approached them at at first, but I I thought I could still do a fair job. Um, so I was writing obituaries. I was writing features. I was writing stuff that I hated. So when I knew I was actually going to the academy, I quit the paper and I took a job delivering newspaper de- delivering pizza- delivering pizzas. Okay. For a couple of reasons. One, I made more money delivering pizzas than I did <laughs> as a full time newspaper reporter. And it gave me a chance to learn the city. Yes, it did. You know, back then there was no um, Google Earth or MapQuest. You know, I had a map. Mm-hmm. So take these two pizzas to nine fourteen North Alfred Street. Okay, where's that? All right, and I would find it. Yep. Now I found myself in some interesting neighborhoods, and a couple of nights, uh, some of my friends on the department found themselves somewhat shadowing me because I was going into some areas that, if I knew better, I would have been more worried about it. But I was hired on January third, nineteen eighty six. Come into the headquarters and sign all the paperwork. So I reported to the police academy at seven a.m. on January sixth, and the academy was about three months long. Yeah, that makes followed sense. Followed by followed by ten weeks of local training, of field training, mm-hmm. and the weeks were four days long with two days off between them. And the last week wasn't training at all. It's what if you will remember, maybe you called shadow phase, where your FTO rides in plain clothes and you make all the decisions. Oh, okay. So nine weeks of four days was 36 days of field training. Now it's at least double that because okay. the four guys have got a lot more to know. There's a lot more intricacy to the job, the oh, specific reports. Sure. Um, I was in patrol for a year. I was selected for a, well, it, it started as sort of a flying squad, the tactical unit. They wanted officers set aside that they could use for anything that came up from a parade to a surveillance, but we tripped over drugs. We had no cars, so we would borrow cars just to get out onto the street. Sometimes they were old, beat-up administrative cars, the secretary's cars. Mm -hmm. And we found ourselves driving through some of the drug neighborhoods, and they didn't see us coming. Mm -hmm. And so we we capitalized on that. We were in uniform, but we put on big, big overshirts or jackets or something to hide the patches, and we could drive right up on the drug deals. So we were in place— when crack cocaine hit the city in about 1987. Boom. Before that, it had been marijuana. It had been Love Boat, which is PCP-laced marijuana that was sold in a big foil packet so you could see it from a car driving by on a hand-to-hand transaction. Mm-hmm. And we learned to sit a block or two away with binoculars. We learned to sneak in at night through the bushes. And we grew as the crack cocaine grew. We made on maybe, the ground your floor. Res- Yeah. We may be a reason why Alexandria didn't have a tremendous rise in the homicide rate like DC did. Mm-hmm. Um, I did that for about two years. I really did that until I figured out all I was doing was giving a bunch of kids a felony record. When I found myself arresting kids for the third time on felonies, I'd arrest them for possession of cocaine or possession with intent, and they'd get Probation, they'd get, they'd get whatever, whatever the courts felt appropriate. Then I'd arrest them again and they'd get something. And then when I was arresting them the third time, I figured out this system isn't working and it's a real bear to do. It's not, it's not fun work. Nobody thanks you. So I got out of that. I did a year in patrol. I worked in the public information office for two years, went back and did a year in patrol did eight years in the community support section. I was a neighborhood officer, Mm -hmm. came out, did a year in patrol, got promoted to sergeant, did four years as a sergeant, uh, took the test and got promoted to lieutenant, did five years as a lieutenant. And somehow all those numbers added up to about 27 years. In my 27th year, I made a severe tactical error. I had always been in patrol. I had always been in uniform. I was a lieutenant. We didn't have a captain's list, but I was a likely candidate. I went to the deputy chief who was in charge of investigations. And I said, I've never been in the detective bureau. It's likely if I make captain, I might end up in charge of it. I really need some experience in there. Would you consider making me one of the two lieutenants who works in there if there's an opening? And he kind of nodded his head because I hadn't remembered there was a third lieutenant position under him, and that was records. Oh, boy. Now, there's nothing wrong with records, and God bless them. They, they they work so hard. But I ended up the commander of information services, okay, over overseeing about 40 civilians doing a job that I was never able to understand. Okay. And my bosses said, you're never going to get what they do. Just kind of hold the fort. But it was a lot of computers. It was a lot of information. I'm not facile with computers. And then about six months later, They came to me and said, we're losing both of our public information officers. One is becoming a realtor, and the other is eight and three quarters months pregnant, and she's about to go off on leave. We need you to be the PIO too. I said, oh, okay. And that job isn't as fun now as it used to, because there's much less actually talking to the press, and there's much more distribution of reports and information. And again, it's computers. So now I'm working two computer jobs. After 27 years on the street, my two computer jobs, I had two heart attacks. And I think that I was great on the street and they wouldn't let me back. So I actually retired in March of 2014. Okay. I finished the book in January of 2015 and then I rewrote it for another year and Mm -hmm. shopped it and shopped it and shopped it and finally found a publisher that would take it over the transom. I never got an agent.
0: Okay. But I did get a book. That's great. So um, two things there. First, I want you to tell me about the book. Tell me about your protagonist and tell me about how you crafted it and and what the story is about and who your protagonist is. And then I'm going to ask you about who your favorite author is, <laughs> somebody that you liked growing up. So Good.
1: I have a lot of those. My hero is
0: John Kelly.
1: He's a detective on the Alexandria Police Department. Going into about his eighth year, he's in youth services. And he is, we all know how complicated a job's work time is. And sometimes how complicated their lives are and the pressure that it, that it exerts. But this week, John Kelly has got one job to do. He has to shepherd a family through the trial of the father for child abduction in order to protect the son who was the father's um, victim. The father's a pedophile. All, right. and all Kelly has to do is get them through trial. It's an open and shut case, except for two things. One, a secret, stupid. Terrible, violent thing that Kelly did the year before, right after his niece was murdered, is about to be dug up by his fellow detectives working another case. And when it comes up, he's going to lose his job and he'll probably go to jail. And there's nothing that he can do about it. The other wrinkle is the pedophile's defense attorney is Kelly's new girlfriend. Ah. She's a public defender and she's got two secrets herself. One is a wonderful, happy secret she's going to share with John and it's going to change their lives. The other is the way she's about to destroy him in court in order to win her case. So I drop rocks on John Kelly's head over and over and over for four days mm. until he's pushed to the limit and he's maybe pushed beyond the limit. I won't exactly say what the limit is, but let me say that when I started, when I first envisioned this book, it was about race relations. I was a member of an all white unit that tactical unit that came to be called the jump out boys, mm-hmm. making drug arrests, working all those hours. And 95 percent of the people we arrested were young black men because right. that's what the drug that's what the street level drug market in Alexandria was comprised of. Mm-hmm. We weren't picking on black people, but the drug trade was within the black community. Understand. And that put a lot of pre- that, it, it put pressure on them, but it put a lot of pressure on us. So I had envisioned that as the theme of the book. But when I had the heart attacks, if you've ever had a serious medical issue and you end up sort of moving through the medical system, you go place to place, you get in an ambulance, you get in an an ICU, you go into an emergency room or an operating room. They always ask you, do you know why you're here? They want to evaluate what you think you know about it and they want to hear your voice. And I would say, well, I was found to have a 100% blockage of the LAD, the left anterior descending. It's the main coronary artery, and they don't find it in living people. It's called the widowmaker. Oh boy! And I can see their eyes get really wide. And some of them, if they know you're a cop, they're, they're they can be a little rougher. They say, "That's the widowmaker. You should you you know you, you're you you shouldn't be here." I had one nurse at Centerra Norfolk Hospital put her hand on my shoulder and say, "You're not supposed to be here right now. God has something more for you to do." Now that isn't necessarily. My, my my vision of what god does for us down here but i thought about it mm-hmm. and then, then when it came time to write the book i thought about it again and thought is there something more i can do with this other than just write a book other than just put some mcdonald's money in my pocket mm-hmm. so i thought about the impact that suicide has on police agencies oh, yeah. um, all, all of us who are close but maybe not all the public know that at least twice as many officers kill themselves as are killed on duty every year. Mm -hmm. And on my department in my 28 years on, we had one officer who was murdered in a drug related shootout and three shot themselves. Plus two of our sheriff's deputies in our city also took their own lives in that period. So that's five to one.
0: Yeah.
1: I decided I would both play up the, the suicidal stress of the job, and dedicate some of my profit to police anti-suicide efforts. Uh, right now, I give 50% of my profit to different agencies. I've given money to the Southern States uh, Police Benevolent Association. Uh, I'm going to be working with the National Police Suicide Foundation, just as I identify groups that, that I think are doing a good job, to both let the public know and to educate departments on how to deal with this and educate officers how to come out. And, and talk about it themselves, cops are never going to talk about this they 're scared to they're scared they're going to lose their gun. I see sometimes my book might be a way that if they talked about the book, they might be able to talk about the pressure they're under so that's sort of where i 'm where I hope the book is going to
0: go. no, understand completely and uh having been law enforcement myself and underst- yeah. understanding the pressures that go on uh, during the course of policing that uh and that every day you make any kind of a felony car stop, do any you walk into any kind of domestic There's a chance of death, but the more insidious one is the one that eats away on the inside and there's very little in terms of uh support or a weight uh for uh active active duty law enforcement to be able to uh deal with those issues, like you said, because they're afraid of being outed and losing their uh losing yes. their shield. And uh, God forbid, you might have to go out and get a real job. And that's, you know, <laughs> and, you know, we both laugh about that being, you know, former law enforcement because the fear was legitimate. You had the greatest gig in the world. Then you have to go out and earn a living. Oh, my God. How am I going to do that? That's right. So, yeah. So I understand. No, I, I, I'm with you on that. Um, Very, very interesting way that you peeled back or you went deeper on that. And uh, with your rewrites, you went into, you know, further on this to to really hone your craft on this book. Um, That sounds good. Uh, Tell me the name Tell me the uh, publisher Tell me how they can get it
1: The book is called Apprehension And yes that has a double meaning mm-hmm. um, It's published by a small company called InkShares in Oakland, California But it's available Nationwide at Amazon You can get it through Barnes & Noble um, It's not well distributed So it's in a couple of Barnes & Nobles In my hometown, mostly because I knocked on the door And said to the manager, hey, would you stock my book? Yeah, sure Okay uh, but yeah, it, it, it's up on Amazon. Uh, you can get it. You can actually read the first chapter if you go to Inkshares.com and search for Mark Bergen and Apprehension. It's also a sales site, too, but, but you can read the first chapter if you just want to get a taste of it.
0: All right. So what's, uh, what's next on uh, in your writing? What are you going to do next after Apprehension? Um,
1: I guess this book's going to become a series. Uh, apprehension was actually set in 1988. Okay. For a couple, of, for for a few reasons. One, that's when I started writing it. Two, the, a lot of the courtroom drama. It's primarily a police procedural, but it's also courtroom, mm-hmm. and it's also a bit of a love story. Believe it or not, the uh, mm-hmm. the public defender that Kelly's in love with. Um, no, she is not my wife, but I did marry a public defender. Oh boy! Who I met when I was a when I was a narc. So that isn't necessarily as outlandishly fictional as as you would think um but while i was writing this book and maybe you've seen it with yours i kept coming up with ideas that didn't quite fit into this one yeah so i would write them down um i'm working on the second book and i have a third and fourth and fifth set up for this character as i kind of grow him the first book was 88 the second book is going to be shortly after 9 11 so 13 years later I want my characters to have grown that far. I want some people to have got married and had children. Um, the time after 9-11 was an interesting time for police departments. Mm-hmm. And although we're right next to Washington, D.C., so we're very much ground zero for expected terrorism, the book isn't going to be about that at all, other than to talk about the effect it had on police and police work, the changes in shifts, the changes in stress, the changes in dealing with suspicious person calls.
0: Help me to understand, where is the Pentagon? Is it in Virginia or is that in D.C. proper?
1: The Pentagon is in Virginia. It's this side of Potomac. And everybody just kind of shorthands it to say the Pentagon in Washington. Right. But the city of Alexandria is about five miles from the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. In fact, the morning that the plane hit, yeah, I was off duty. And I came out of the shower and I turned on the Today Show to see the towers getting hit. And I knew something was going on. So I jumped in my car and they talked about the Pentagon being hit. I was heading there and I got diverted to go to Alexandria Hospital to help handle what we, what we anticipated would be a large number of casualties. Now, as it turns out, there weren't a lot of casualties needing medical treatment, if I could say it that way.
0: Yeah, they were fatalities.
1: They were fatalities or they were handled on the scene or they went to a number of hospitals in Arlington. But I stayed there all day um, handling the crowd of people that came to give blood. I actually made some runs to pick up medical supplies from other hospitals because I had a cop car and I could get through. Um, but this will be a scene in the book a night or two after the Pentagon was hit. I'd been a day shift officer uh, on the community support section, and I was working midnight. They, they assigned me to midnight patrol just because we had to get everybody out there. Yep. I'm, I'm driving through a neighborhood, windows open, and I smell a house fire. A house fire has a very distinctive odor. It's different from a car fire. It's different from a trash fire. And I knew something was on fire somewhere. I radioed to headquarters and asked if fire was working something in the Park Fairfax neighborhood. They said, no, no, fire's not out on anything right now. And I figured out what I was smelling was the Pentagon. The burnt building from the Pentagon was close enough to us that we could smell the fire. Mm. Uh, So that's book two a little bit. And I'm mostly done plotting that I've written the first chapter about 10 times and it isn't flowing just yet, but it, but it will. Okay. And I have at least three more with these characters and I've got some other books in mind.
0: Mm. Well, that's good. You're moving one one foot after the other. So um, before we got on uh, and before I would let you on, (laughs) (laughs) I uh, no, I'm only kidding about that. What I always ask my authors uh, are who were there? Who did they like to read? And who do they like to read? And you gave me one of my favorites. So if you want to tell me, uh, let's. uh, Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, Joseph Wamba. Joseph Wamba has to be the king or the god or the epitome of police writers. Um, Former LAPD wrote a lot of good novels years ago and then got out and then got back into the fiction writing business. Mm -hmm. Um, I like him very much when I knew that I was retired and I was going to write I got out books by all of my old favorites, George V. Higgins, who wrote The Friends of Eddie Coyle. He's probably my muse. He writes books that are maybe 90 percent dialogue They're crime stories set in and around Boston. He'd been a prosecutor up there.
0: OK. Uh,
1: I like Elmore Leonard. I like his uh, his action. Um,
0: and, and, but, his, and his writing style, my God, oh,
1: his writing style is so it, 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 it it's 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 hypnotic. He's fantastic. He's, he just moved from character to action to dialogue. He does it, or did everything. But the author I chose not to read before I started writing was Joseph Wambaugh. I knew my books were going to be very similar to his. His officers are under tremendous stress, whether it's alcoholism or the the terrible things they see on the job, the suicidal pressures. And I didn't want to be or repeat the influence that he had on me so close to actually writing. Mm-hmm. So I didn't read him at all. Some of my favorite current authors that are doing really, really good police work are uh, Bruce Coffin. He's, he, he was a cop up in Maine, and he writes the uh, Detective Byron series. Uh, I think they're set in Portland, Maine. I don't know Maine that well. I've only been through there once. But they're really, really good police procedurals in a small town.
0: Now, was uh, Bruce out at uh... – out at he, was at,
1: he was at Boucher Con. He's been there a number of times, which is probably why they didn't put him on, on our police writing panel. He had other panels. I guess yeah. the more you're out there, you find, they find other things that you can say.
0: And his last name?
1: Uh, coffin, like, like, like a dead person is in a coffin. coffin exactly. Coffin. Bruce Coffin. All right. Um, there are two guys from, God, is it Portland? One of the departments out in California, and I'm embarrassed to say they are Colin Conway and Frank Zafiro. Mm-hmm. They wrote a fantastic police procedural called Charlie Three Sixteen. I just finished that; one of the best police procedurals I've read in years. Okay. And I don't want to say too much about it. I don't. I don't even want to say if it has a twist because it's so surprising. I don't want people to be expecting anything. Okay. It's just heroes become villains, villains become heroes, true to life in terms of what happens on the street.
0: And the name. And the name of the book again is Charlie Three Sixteen which is a beat
1: designator in, in the department they're at. And I, I hate to say, I can't remember what department that is. Yeah. Um, it's like one out of 12. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, Dana King, you might know. He's a civilian. And as a civilian, he writes the best civilian written police procedurals I've ever read. Okay. He writes about a little town in Pennsylvania called Penn's River. He's written about five books about detectives out there. Dana King um, friend of mine too, so, so I'm glad to plug him. Okay. And there's a guy whose book I just read. I just finished it, and I'm really, really hoping he's going to write more. His name is John Hoda. <laughs> he wrote this fantastic book called Odessa on the Delaware about an FBI agent who goes from the rough and tumble in Miami. She gets assigned into Philadelphia and trips over this massive mob plot. It was, it was, it was breakneck. I, I couldn't put that book down.
0: Thank you. Thanks. Thank and, you, John. It was good luck. Oh, thank you. I, I had I had the, the ultimate compliment on on Odessa uh, from another one of my podcast guests. And this was not so bad of a pot compliment either, but I get a text message from him. He says, Damn you. I was up till three o'clock in the morning. I couldn't put your book down. <laughs> Damn yep. you. So yep. yeah, that, that that gave me goosebumps just like this one did. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, you know, and just like you, um, yeah, Marsha's got more to do. Marsha's got more to say. Marsha O'Shea. Yeah, and okay. uh, I'll let you know more about that. And uh, when we get out there at BoucherCon in Sacramento in uh, late fall or in mid fall, uh, yeah. you're going to be going again, you think?
1: Um, Probably, maybe. I'm not really sure. Um, okay. It's a long way to go, but yeah. I had a lot of fun. That was my second BoucherCon ba- where I met you. Okay. My first one I had gone to in St. Petersburg when I hadn't published yet. Oh, okay. And the difference was going to the first one was kind of like going to the Academy Awards celebration, and you're on the other side of the red tape. Uh-huh. Going to BoucherCon as a writer is mm-hmm. like being backstage and bumping into heroes and gods and people that I've, I've worshipped and wanted to be among. I mean, to me, writers are the coolest people in the world. Yeah. I, I don't know why not everybody wants to write. I I I bump into people now that I can call myself a writer, and say, you know, I, I never really thought about writing. I said, how could you not? Everybody wants to be a writer, right? Everybody's no. got a story to tell.
0: I think so. Yeah. No, you're right, and uh, I, I'm the same way. I just say, you know, get your fanny in the seat, get your hands on the keyboard. Uh, yeah. If you, I even rec- I even go so far as to tell them, look, if you don't know how to write a fiction book, there are books on how to write fiction books, and, and the one that was most instrumental to me back years ago when I wrote my first fiction was how to, um, uh, dummies, uh, book on how to write, you know, the dummies book on how to write fiction. I forget the name of it now, Peter economy and Randy Inger Manson, two, Hmm. uh, two guys that just, I followed all the steps. I did all the checklists. I did all the exercises and, and to this day, Mark, before I, I will start the beginning of my actual sit down and doing the, uh, outline maybe after i've done my research maybe i maybe after i've done some character bibles but before i sit down and do my outline i'll go back over that book again one more time just to make sure i'm not uh grazing over anything or if i'm missing anything but uh, cool. i just i just say that out loud um you know wamba for me was uh, i'm going to i'm going to jump you back to wamba because sure. uh for me uh i read him when i was in college now imagine cool you've got all these damn boring textbooks on sociology and philosophy and physics and mathematics. Oh my God. And then every <laughs> once in a while you get to read about what real life cops do. And he couldn't have got been more realistic than, I mean, I later on learned how realistic they were, but, but he, he was like so realistic in his initial books, uh, uh, uh the new centurions, yes. um, the choir boys, uh, the blue knight. And and then he followed up with the onion field, which was the true life story. Oh uh, my god, yeah! Uh, and that just uh, chilled me to the bone uh, of the two cops, uh, of the one cop that survived uh, an ambush. Um, but basically, uh, you know, I, I just couldn't couldn't get over how he had gotten cop talk down to an absolute science. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know I mean. And it's almost funny because I think then some some real life coppers started patterning pattern and themselves after <laughs> after what Wamba was doing, and it's like life imitating art, you know, which was art imitating life. But anyway, I, I get the but to think about him being an active detective, writing the first several books, and then getting movie deals and being on uh, movie sets and being consultant, script consultants for like yes. poli- police story. Uh-huh. Oh my um i ill i'll I'll unabashedly, I'll unabashedly say right now for all my listeners that um Joe Wamba is my dream uh interview i guess i i i just i hope you don't mind mark i just want Please. just want to put you in second place to Joe Wombaugh. that's okay That's a good place to be All right, yeah, so uh but I just felt that it just and and I read him first as a college student, then like on the midnight shift as a cop, then later on as an investigator. Doing, you know, investigative work where there was still, you know, uh, try, I was still trying to prove some semblance of uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. And just looking at the different times in my life as I read Wamba, and then for him to come back with the Hollywood series most recently, you know, and getting him back on the street again with the Hollywood division of uh, in L.A. Yeah. I, I just thought that was. I had done a, not a 360, but I had just gone through an entire lifetime. And seeing how he wrote and seeing what he wrote, just I just loved it. And just as genuine in the last book as it was in the very first one. Maybe not groundbreaking, but certainly just as genuine. And uh, again, you couldn't see everything coming at you. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, I like the fact that, you know, you're talking about some new reads, some new exciting people that you're going to enjoy. Uh, I I think that, uh, you know, maybe there was a golden age of – of, uh, of writing our stuff. It might have been back, uh, in the, in the earliest, uh, time in the 20s and 30s and then a rebirth with, um, paperback. But then, oh my God, in today's multimedia world and the opportunity for self publishing as well, um, there's just so much opportunity for good writing to get out there. I, I don't think I can read it all, honestly. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I try, but I, I can't. So. Um, that's some great advice, Bruce Coffin. Uh, the guys that wrote Charlie Three Sixteen,
1: Spokane, uh, Spokane, Washington is where they're from. I just remembered.
0: Okay, see, it that's takes good. us a little longer, but we get there eventually. <laughs> you know, uh, I had a podcast guest on a couple weeks ago, and uh, I thought about a, a joke, a, a writer, that uh, a comedian, and it wasn't until like the next day that I got that name came to my head, and I typed them, <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, you're right." But it took it took me twenty four hours for the the brain neuropathways to get back there. Anyway, so um, I, I really appreciate you coming on today. I, I thank you so much. Um, you have so, you mentioned some nice uh, nonprofits, and these are where people could also make uh, contributions if they wanted to. So let's go there again, and let's just give another shout-out to uh, how they can get apprehension and how they can get in touch with you. So kind of working backwards, tell me about your favorite uh, nonprofits as it deals with suicides and, and police police suicides in well- and tell me about uh, your book and then tell me about how they can get to you. Like I said, when I was writing it, I pledged to give a percentage of my profits to
1: um, police suicide prevention. And when I was first writing it, I decided I was going to give 10% because that, that was going to be a good amount of money. I was going to be famous like Andy Weir and I was going to get $100,000 profit for the first book and a $100,000 movie deal. Right. And that didn't quite work out. So I bounced it up to 50% just so I could put some zeros on the check. And I was able to give money to the Southern States Police Benevolent Association. Mm-hmm. They have um, an organization within them called the Police Benevolent Fund. And there are PBAs all across the country. And you can check with them and see whether they have any organization within them that's, that's targeting suicide. Okay. There's also a fine group called the National Police Suicide Foundation. They're a 501c3. They're based in Delaware. And I was fortunate that even though I wasn't at that point a cop, I was retired, I was able to attend a three-day training program put on by Baltimore PD. And Dr. Robert Douglas of the National Suicide Prevention Foundation spoke, and he really impressed me. They do those two things I talked about. They teach departments how to both reduce stress on officers and recognize when some of them might be pushing the limit and then what to do with them. And they also run a no-tell hotline, a helpline, that officers can call into without fear that this organization is going to call their department. They can ask for help. They can get help. The number for the Suicide Foundation, and there are more and more organizations like this popping up, but I really like the foundation. Their number that officers can call is 866-276-4615. And, um... Like I said, I just like, I like working with them, but I'm hoping to do a little bit more talking around the country. And in a perfect world, if I ever go somewhere, sell some books, I'll give money to that organization's, um, suicide program. Um, money's nice, but I'm not in this for money. I understand. Maybe the next book I will be, but this one, I really just want to try and spread the word about what cops are going through. I really wanted the book to be a look at police realistically. It's not Dirty Harry. It's, Mm. uh. I think a cop can read this and say, that's what it's like out there.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I, 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 and I hope that people will uh, take a read. Uh, tell me again. Uh, they can get it through uh, Amazon, but they can get it directly from your publisher through? They can get it from my publisher at InkShares. That's
1: I-N-K-S-H-A-R-E-S dot mm-hmm. com right. um, slash book slash apprehension. And if they go to that website, they can also read the, uh, the first chapter. But it is available through Amazon.com. It's available uh, through Barnes and Noble, and your local
0: bookstore can can get it on order too. Great. That's either through Ingram Spark or Kobo. But exactly. Yeah. All right. Um, and then how can? Lastly, how can people get in touch with you? Oh, good. Um,
1: I have a website. Uh, I'm trying to make it a blog site, but I've been neglecting the blog. It's simply markbergenwriter.com, and I'm M-A-R-K-B-E-R-G-I-N, followed by writer. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. I've got a Mark Bergen writer Facebook page Mm -hmm. that I'd be glad to friend anybody on. Um, If you buy the book, my email's in the back, and uh, you you can write to me there, too.
0: Fantastic. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for being on the show today, Mark. It was well worth the wait. John, this was a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Ah, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and time. If you have any questions or comments, you can leave them at the website, www.johnhoda.com. It's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Our guest next week is Kelly Riddle. Kelly is a private investigator operating from San Antonio, Texas. He's licensed throughout uh, much of the United States and has 61 investigators working for him. And the company is called Kelmar Global. He started as a law enforcement officer after attending the University of Northern Alabama and then returned to Texas where he became an insurance investigator and quickly uh, created a uh, company to service the needs of the insurance industry. And it's from that location that Kelly then grew his business into its present form. He is an advocate of membership in trade associations, particularly private investigation associations, and is a member of over 20 different associations. Additionally, he is a prolific writer. Also, he is a creator of a school online for private investigators and is a seminar and conference speaker well sought after. It is my pleasure next week to have Kelly Riddle on the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear other great detective stories, please go to the website and click on our podcast page. There you'll find the backlist. Now, you're probably asking, John, what about your own stories? Do you have any? Sure enough, I do. And they are available to you free as a download right to your inbox. I have eight short stories and eight vignettes in a book titled Mugshots, my favorite detective stories. Now, here's my ask. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by stories today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friends. Better still, go to the iTunes website and leave a review. It's the best way to grow the circle around our campfire. If you have any questions, please contact me through the website, www.johnhoda.com. J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Thanks so much, and have a great day.